Hi, I'm your host Charlene Burns, a researcher with the ProLegis policy team. Welcome to the Congressional Record, a podcast by ProLegis. Each week, we bring you a deep dive into Congress's policy priorities. In this podcast, we'll cover the processes unique to the first branch of government and discuss some of the pressing policy issues legislators are working on. To stay on top of new podcast episodes and to get other policy content from ProLegis, sign up for a free ProLegis account using the link in the description below. This week, we bring you a special episode of the Congressional Record with part two of our series on housing affordability. I had the opportunity to interview Emily Kotick of the Affordable Housing Tax Credit Coalition about how the low-income housing tax credit contributes towards affordable housing supply. Up for Growth has estimated that the U.S. is short 3.8 million housing units to keep up with housing needs for renters and home buyers. To incentivize the construction of more affordable housing, the federal government created the Low Income Housing Tax Credit in the 1980s to incentivize developers to build affordable housing. The housing credit is the primary program for increasing housing supply in the U.S. In this interview, I speak with Emily about how the low-income housing tax credit has increased affordable housing. We also talked about recent federal proposals to reform the housing credit and what may be ahead for the rest of the year and in the following Congress. Stay tuned for the interview after the break. ProLegis is a new policy technology company founded by former congressional staffers and startup alums. We have one mission, to offer free tools that make it easier to learn about, track, and deepen your understanding of policy issues and legislation. We offer free features such as U.S. code redlining and a personalizable dashboard to track the legislation and congressional activity that matters to you. We also offer nonpartisan, unbiased information through our briefings and podcasts. Sign up for a free account today to get full access to the suite of policy tools on ProLegis.com. Hi, everyone. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Emily Kotick. Emily is the Chief Executive Officer of the Affordable Housing Tax Credit Coalition, where she leads advocacy to support affordable rental housing financed using the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. Prior to joining the AHTCC, she was a Senior Director of Public Policy at Enterprise Community Partners, where she led policy and advocacy related to the housing credit and other affordable housing and community development issues. She also helped lead the A Call to Invest in Our Neighborhoods or Action Campaign, the nationwide coalition of more than 2,000 organizations and businesses advocating on behalf of the housing credit and remains active in this nationwide advocacy effort. In 2017, she received the NHP Foundation's inaugural advocacy award and in 2016 was named one of the Affordable Housing Finance's Young Leaders. Emily, thank you for joining me today as a guest on the Congressional Record. Great. Thank you so much for having me. This past year has been a pretty tough one for many renters when they were resigning their leases. I know the Bureau of Labor Statistics put out a report that said rent increased by 6.3% across board in the past year, but that doesn't totally capture how bad the rental market has been in some areas. I know my sister, she was living in Manhattan, New York, Um, in the past year, and she was essentially living behind a curtain in their living room. And so it's not really the ideal setup. 
But when she put her place up to sublet, she got dozens of responses immediately from people who were willing to pay like well above the rental price. And there's also been dozens of TikToks and everything talking about how difficult it was to find housing around New York. But what's been going on with the rental market in the past year? And is it all just COVID-related inflation? Yeah, it's a great question. And unfortunately, housing has been all over the news lately. And as somebody who works in affordable housing, uh, I can tell you that hasn't always been the case. But the reasons it's in the news so much lately is because uh, things have gotten a lot worse. And it is partly because of uh, certainly the pandemic. It's partly because of inflation. Um, It's partly because, you know, things that affect all parts of the economy, like Uh, supply chain shortages and labor costs and construction costs are rising. But we were facing a supply shortage of both regular housing and affordable housing before the pandemic. And it's just gotten a lot worse and very quickly. So um, you cited some, some great statistics. We're seeing a lot coming out that are immediately uh, replacing the prior month statistics as, you know, some of the worst ever. So uh, for example, one that I wanted to share with you is that, uh, well, one of them, you you said about 6% increase. The Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies, and they might have different methodologies, said that rents increased nearly 12% nationwide last year, which was the largest year-over-year increase in over 20 years. Um, Bloomberg just came out with a study at the end of August saying the average monthly cost to rent a one-bedroom increased by 11.8% over the past 12 years. Um, so you're seeing a lot of kind of similar, you know, huge increases for a one-year time period. Um, part of that is because there's just the shortage of supply. So Up for Growth re- recently came out with a report um, saying there's a 3.8 million shortage of just homes, period, at, at all levels of incomes. Um, National Low Income Housing Coalition also has um, some good data on this, and they focus on the homes that are actually affordable to people at the lower end of the income spectrum. And there's an enormous shortage there. And the average two bedroom rental, you need to work uh, 96 hours at minimum wage, which is nearly two and a half full-time jobs to afford a two bedroom um, on average. So obviously if you, you know, if you happen to have two and a half workers in your family, then, you know, maybe that works out, but for, you know, a single parent or people on fixed incomes, Um, It's just, it's so out of reach to be able to afford housing. Well, your organization, the Affordable Housing Tax Credit Coalition, has been working on affordable rental housing for years, specifically through advocacy around the low-income housing tax credit. For our audience of people who may have housing policy portfolios, but may not have heard of the low-income housing tax credit, or are new to housing issues in general, can you explain a little bit about what the housing credit is? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in the context of of what we just talked about, it really solves two issues. One is that in the private market, it just costs a certain amount of money to build a building and low income tenants can only afford to pay so much. So you need something to fill the gap. And the second issue is we just don't have enough affordable housing supply period. So while there are a number of programs to help bring down costs for renters and bridge that gap between what it costs to build and what renters can af- low-income renters can afford. Um, and they're all important and they're all part of the, the affordable housing ecosystem. Uh, we really need to actually 
build more affordable housing. And that's where the low income housing tax credit comes in and it finances virtually all new affordable housing, uh, either built or preserved in the US. So uh, the way it works is every state gets a certain amount of credits based on their population. Uh, it's really oversubscribed. So developers compete to get the credits and the state can choose what kinds of properties they put the credits into based on whether it's, you know, we're looking for more rural and farm worker housing, or we're looking for uh, housing to help recover from uh, a hurricane and we, we need more in this area. So th the states can set that every year and developers will compete based on what's established. Um, the developers don't actually, they basically win a promise of credits and then the credits actually start flowing once they've actually built the property and it's up and running and there are low income people who are eligible for the program living in it. So it's very, um, you know, it's a public private partnership. It's the, the private sector investors who put up the equity to allow the developers to build the project so they can get the credits, have a lot of skin in the game because they don't get the credits unless the project's successful. So the model's been, you know, very proven. It's been around for almost 40 years now. And it's really why this is what we use to build all affordable housing in the U.S. I should add that, generally speaking, um, the people living in the developments are at or below 60% of area median income, and the properties have to stay affordable for uh, 30 years. Yeah, I think one interesting aspect of it that I wasn't familiar with beforehand was that the credit can be exchanged with an investor, and developers usually do that to get the upfront capital to actually um, you know, build the project and start the project, which obviously expands the group of people and entities that are kind of invested in LIHTC. Yeah, a lot of the investors are you know, major financial institutions like uh, you know, Bank of America, Capital One, JP Morgan, and um, you know, you're seeing a lot of these, uh, or even you know, some of the tech companies or insurance companies like um, Aetna and United Healthcare. So you're seeing a lot of these major players that um, may be primarily known for you know whatever their individual line of business is, but they are uh, some of them are really major players in the affordable housing financing world as well. So unlike many housing programs, obviously LIHTC is a tax credit and therefore housed under the IRS rather than the Department of Housing and Urban Development. But how significant is LIHTC as a federal program and for housing policy in general? as compared to things like Section 8 or other HUD-led housing development programs? Yeah, it is interesting how um, in the past, I think some of these programs have been a little bit more uh, siloed from one another. You know, HUD has its, its spending programs and then the IRS had its tax program. We're definitely seeing a lot more interaction between them for a few reasons. Um, one is HUD has... Uh, you know, we used to build housing, not through the housing credit, but through the public housing program. And that has generally not um, built any new housing for the most part in many years now. It's it's really more about maintaining the public housing we have now. Um, but a big way that we've been maintaining HUD's public housing stock is by recapitalizing it using the low-income housing tax credit. So um, there's a program called the Rental Assistance Demonstration uh, a, a large share of public housing has already gone through it, uh, an even larger share is going to go through it. 
And the Low Income Housing Tax Credit provides about 40% of the financing for all of the capital repairs. So, you know, HUD and and the, the credit program are working together more closely than they ever have before on that program specifically. But I also think um, the Biden administration has done a lot to engage housing advocates on all parts of the um, affordable housing industry and is, is trying to come up with a more holistic housing plan as well. So we're seeing, um, you know, in the same breath, talking about low-income housing tax credit vouchers, um, housing trust fund, home program, things like that, all as part of the same system, which I think is helpful for all of them because they, they all do work together often um, in the exact same development. Um, in terms of size, so the housing credit program uh, the actual market, and this includes all the private investment as well, it's about a $22 billion market every year. Um, I believe that's actually pretty similar in size to the voucher program. Um, in terms of units, uh, the program, local housing tax credit program, builds over 100,000 or preserves over 100,000 units every year. So it's adding to the supply at a very steady rate. Um, Whereas, you know, the voucher program will subsidize uh, rental units on the private market. So if you get off the waiting list, which is very considerable in many cities, and you get a voucher, it's up to you to go find an apartment that meets the requirements somewhere in the private market. In many cities, that that unit will be in a low-income housing tax credit property. To clarify one of the things that you mentioned low-income housing tax credit, it doesn't just apply to new construction, right? It also applies to repairs. Yeah. So a lot of what the housing credit does is also um, taking existing properties. Uh, many of them, you know, maybe they were built in the seventies and they're starting to fall into disrepair. You don't need to knock the entire thing down and start over, but you may need a new roof. You need a new HVAC system, you know, mm -hmm. there, things like that. And the housing credit can do that, especially in you know, you think about cities like New York City or San Francisco, where it's not like there's an abundance of land where you can go build new affordable properties, but there are plenty of buildings that could become habitable and gain another 30 years of life if you rehabilitate them. So that's actually about half of what the program does. I know your organization, AHTCC, played a role in advocating for making the low-income housing tax credit permanent back in the 1980s. Can you talk a little bit about the history of your organization? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you mentioned, um, it, well, so the housing credit was created in 1986 in tax reform. Um, initially, it was a temporary program. And so um, the Affordable Housing Tax Credit Coalition was one of the early organizations trying to make it permanent. And um, obviously our mission has changed very much since then. And one thing that's um, you know helpful about the program being in the tax code is that it's not a program that needs to be reauthorized every year. It is permanent. There's certainly changes we're trying to make and we can talk about those. But generally speaking, permanence is no longer the, you know, the, the push we need, but it's really more about expanding it to meet the affordable housing need that we started off by talking about. Also, as a now more than 35-year-old program, there's certainly things that we could change about it to help it reach some harder-to-reach areas like rural areas, serving harder-to-reach populations like formerly homeless veterans, for example, where maybe you need some um, additional features to serve them successfully. So 
we have um, grown to really be at the forefront of whatever changes are needed to the program, taking into account what Congress is doing, what the administration is looking at. And we represent now groups that have financed or developed well over half of the 3.6 million affordable homes that this program has produced so far. And so what are some of the priorities that you guys are focused on right now? Most immediately, you know, I mentioned we don't have to fight for permanence every year anymore, but there was an increase in the housing credit allocation that was made in 2018 and it expired at the end of 2021. And um, I think it was kind of inadvertent because housing credit proposals were originally part of Build Back Better. And when it looked like Build Back Better would replace the need for extensions of things like this, um, you know, there wasn't really a discussion about, you know, do we just need to extend this 12.5%? But of course, um, you know, nothing passed last year. And then the Inflation Reduction Act came together without proposals for housing. And so now for the you know, for the first time, we're facing this unprecedented cut to the housing credit allocation at a time when housing is in the news every day because of how quickly rents are rising. So we are, at the very least, going to be seeking to extend and restore that 12.5% cut by the end of this year before it gets, you know, baked in and, and state agencies have to start making decisions about, you know, what they're going to, you know, which properties they're not going to fund that they thought that they were going to be able to. But we're also seeking to add additional housing credits on top of that because, again, the need has grown. And we're also working on um, some proposals related to uh, private activity bond financing, which factor into rehabilitation of affordable housing that I mentioned. So um, we can go into detail on that if you want, also fine not to, but um, those are our, our legislative priorities right now. And we're also monitoring a lot on the regulatory front that impacts housing credit investment right now. I, I want to touch on the Build Back Better Act. And you mentioned the 12.5%, I think it was. Um, but were there other provisions that were related to LIHTC that were in earlier versions of the Build Back Better Act that, you know, ended up getting cut with the IRA? Yeah, so there was originally um, it, the first version of Build Back Better in the House was an historic expansion of the low-income housing tax credit. It was a, both of the provisions I mentioned, you know, not only restoring the 12.5%, but going significantly above that. Um, it was making this change on private activity bond financing. That's called the 50% test. It, it included lowering the 50% test. Um, it included some proposals to, allow state agencies to put extra credits into properties that serve extremely low income tenants, Native Americans, other, you know, some other difficult to reach populations. It really had a, a pretty good assortment of provisions in the original bill. Um, the Senate version, the later one, uh, got trimmed down from about 30 billion in the housing credit to about 12 billion. So some of the provisions were dropped and, you know, some of the different kind of ways they were structured were changed to bring it down within the cost, but it still would have been a historic expansion of the credit. And then in the ultimate version of Inflation Reduction Act, there was um, really nothing on housing other than insofar as it relates to climate change. So there was about a billion dollars for um, HUD funding to do like retrofitting, things like that. Um, but, you know, the LIHTC pieces weren't in there. 
the $150 billion of other HUD spending that were in the original Build Back Better weren't in there. So a lot of, uh, you know, we and a lot of the other housing groups are working together now to, you know, see what opportunities we can find in any legislation that may come together at the end of this year. I definitely want to get to, you know, talking about future legislation, maybe what's possible in the lame duck and all those types of questions that everyone's kind of asking now that we're headed towards the end of the year. But I do want to, you know, get into the 50% test and the private bond refinancing, um, because I think it's kind of a complicated aspect of this. And I'd love to chat about that a little bit. You know, I gave a very high level overview of how the program works, but there's two types of credits, and you may have heard if, if you've kind of gone past the 101 on the housing credit, you're at the 201 level, there's a 9% and a 4% credit. And the 9% credit is for new construction, generally speaking, and substantial rehabilitation. The 4% credit is uh, just for rehabilitation for the most part. Um, the way that you get the 4% credits is different than the way you get the 9% credits and you become eligible for the 4% credits if more than half of your project is financed with private activity bonds. So the state agency gives you these bonds, you know, your project is underwritten to make sure that, you know, at least 50% comes from bond financing and then you get the award of the bonds and and the 4% credits. Um, the 50% threshold is kind of a, an artifact. It is arbitrary. There is nothing magic about it. And it is an issue now for two reasons. One is because of the affordable housing need, a lot of states are using up all their bond cap. Um, they used It used to be kind of considered an uncapped resource because there were more private activity bonds lying around. But what started as a few states using up all their bond cap, like New York, California, Washington, ones you'd expect. Now we're seeing, you know, Georgia, Tennessee, Florida, you know, a lot of states are using up all of their uh, bond cap. And so if you can get your 4% credits with half the bond financing, then you can build twice the affordable housing or the state can use those bonds for, you know, whatever else they've decided to use private activity bonds for. So it's really a way to increase production and, and more efficiently use the resources. The other issue is with costs on everything jumping up so much, maybe what was 50% of your project financing in May now makes up 45% of your project financing because your costs of fill in the blank just shot up. Mm -hmm. So it's really difficult to maintain that threshold of, of the 50% test. So if you can lower it, that's just one you know lower hurdle for developers to jump through or over when they're uh, trying to assemble their project financing. Mm -hmm. So for our audience of congressional staffers and people who are interested in the legislative process and legislative priorities of Congress, what do you think is next for LIHTC in Congress in the next year and possibly in the next Congress? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, a lot of that's going to have to depend on the midterms. Um, fortunately, low-income housing tax credits had a history of bipartisan support. It was signed into law under, you know, President Reagan. It was expanded under President Trump. So it's certainly not the case that this is a, you know, program that only has success when one party is in control. Um, I think, you know, the greater threat to anything legislatively, if 
one or both chambers of Congress flips is just the legislative gridlock and how many opportunities will there to be, you know, doing anything much less on affordable housing. So I think, you know, we as an affordable housing community are going to have to be really clear about, you know, coalescing around the, the priorities that will have the biggest impact that will increase affordable housing production the most. And we're also going to be working with the administration who has been um, really looking for ways to support affordable housing that don't require going through Congress. So we've seen a few examples of that already. Um, they've clearly expressed an interest in, you know, send us your ideas, your recommendations. And so we may see a little more activity on the regulatory front as well. But um, I mean, the other thing is we hope we're going to get some of these um, pieces done this year. We're going to be working really hard to, um, you know, the production priorities I mentioned to you. We'd love to get those done in a year-end bill. If we don't, that's our top priority next year. If we are successful, um, we'll be, you know, regrouping and and seeing in what ways the landscape may have changed and what our, our highest priorities become after that. Mm-hmm. I want to jump into the Biden administration and these possible regulatory changes. I know that the Biden administration put out its housing supply action plan back in May that included some proposals related to LIHTC. Could you talk about those a little bit and um, what we should be looking for? Yeah, so one of the the pieces in the um, housing supply action plan was an endorsement of legislation called the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. And that's legislation that's been around since 2016. Um, It's basically the menu of all of the uh, provisions we'd like to see um, on behalf of the housing credit. So there's 27 of them. We understand uh, tax bills often don't leave room for more than a couple, which is why uh, we're focusing on the priorities I mentioned. But we were challenged years ago by uh, our, our longtime lead in the Senate, Maria Cantwell, to you know, come up with what the reforms would be if we needed to really take another look at the program. And that was during tax reforms, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, when there was a lot of interest in, you know, any any tax credit that stays in the code is going to be really examined and potentially changed significantly. And so we developed these proposals with that in mind. But since then, um, it's really had a lot of bipartisan support. We had at one Congress, we had half the House signed on to the bill. This Congress, we're up to about a third of Congress has signed on to this legislation, ranging the political spectrum. So the idea is when, when there are opportunities to advance tax legislation, we can pluck out some of the proposals from the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act and get them across the finish line. So um, the Biden administration endorsed that, which is great. Um, The other things that they included, one is um, regulations related to a flexibility called income averaging, which um, are expected any day now, like by the time this podcast comes out, we believe slash hope that these regulations will be out. And that has to do with um, restoring a flexibility that was enacted in 2018 but the way that the IRS regulations were written kind of slowed slash stopped use of this flexibility and the regulations are being rewritten, we hope with the intent of restoring it. Um, I mentioned that generally speaking, 
tenants in these properties are at 60% of area median income or below, this would allow you to go up to 80% so long as the average of all the tenants in the building is at 60 or below. And that helps you kind of cross subsidize within a property because these higher income tenants can pay higher rent, which offsets lower rents for lower income tenants. It has a lot of other benefits. But um, anyways, we should have news on that soon. That's one of the things the Biden administration called for. They also um, made it possible to use some of the ARPA money, the state and local fiscal recovery funds, compatible with the housing credit in a way that it wasn't before. So that's something we thought we were going to have to go to Congress for, but they figured out a way to do it on the regulatory side, which is always um, a little faster and easier. Um, so we're going to keep working with them on some of the other things, just, you know, some of the items we're watching that we've been weighing in with the administration about our um, Community Reinvestment Act reform, because a lot of getting that private investment in the housing credit comes from financial institutions that are motivated by Community Reinvestment Act. And with the regulators rewriting those rules, um, there could be some major impacts on investment. And similarly, um, with negotiations around a global minimum tax, not normally something we in the affordable housing world are weighing in on, but um, the exceptions made for U.S. business tax credits like the housing credit and how that factors into this global minimum are going to be really important for maintaining our um, investment as well. Because, you know, one of the unique things about the program is it does get all of these companies to you know, put up the investment equity for, you know, put up the capital for these developments for affordable housing. But the, you know, the market factors need to be aligned in order for them to continue doing that in the way they have been. So sometimes these issues that don't on their face appear to, you know, be affordable housing regulations or bills can have a really big impact on the affordable housing investor market and our ability to build and preserve affordable housing. Yeah, I think the nexus of global minimum tax and LIHTC was not one I expected, but is interesting um, to learn about. Nor did I. <laughs> um, so that was a great intro into LIHTC. And I think obviously there's hopefully a lot to look forward to for the rest of this year and ahead. And I definitely recommend, you know, listeners checking out AHTCC to get more informed on, you know, what's going on. But the last thing I have before we close out this conversation is that I wanted to give you a chance to plug anything you're working on that you would like listeners to check out. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, I would just encourage you to check out um, taxcreditcoalition.org to learn more about everything we talked about today and um, learn more about you know, housing credit and what our priorities are. Um, well, thank you again, Emily, for joining me and giving us this explainer on LightTech. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure talking to you. Understanding the annual appropriations process has never been more simple than with ProLegis' appropriations tool. The tool is a one-of-a-kind, easy-to-use, searchable database that provides historical context for federal government spending bills and contains appropriations data from fiscal year 2016 to 2021 for every account and subaccount. ProLegis' appropriations tool can help staffers quickly identify appropriations levels and trends from previous fiscal years. 
Whether you're working on a policy memo, reviewing appropriations requests, or trying to understand Congress's appropriations decisions, the Appropriations Tool can help. Sign up for our free ProLegis account to get access to the ProLegis Appropriations Tool today. That's all for this episode of The Congressional Record. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to sign up for your free ProLegis account using the link in the description if you haven't already. You can go to ProLegis.com, that's P-R-O-L-E-G-I-S.com, to find additional show notes and sources for each of our episodes. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Our handles are in the episode notes as well. Finally, I want to give special thanks to Amelia Schuster and Jason Lemons for providing their feedback on this episode. We'll see you next week on the Congressional Record. Congressional Record